Hey, video professional, let me ask you a few questions. If a crazy bride wants her money back, what do you do? Hmm. When you have people in the background of your videos, are you in legal hot water if they didn't sign a release? Hmm. And who actually owns your raw footage? Hmm. If you don't know the answers to these questions, you may want to listen up. You'll be surprised by what two attorneys have to say. Hmm. We're on a mission on a to mission. rid the world of bad video. Bye-bye. This is the DV Show. Bad video sucks. Welcome to this edition of the DV Show podcast. My name is Brian. You know, making a film or video is an exciting prospect, and there's great temptation to start as quickly as possible. But before you pick up that camera, any video worth making requires a great deal of planning and preparation, and that includes ensuring you comply with all legal issues. Basically, you want to cover your butt. So on this week's podcast, we stepped into the videographer room on Clubhouse, where two attorneys, Laura Cosgrove and Kevin Ross from Aclaw Law in Central Florida, they gave some surprising answers to some legal issues videographers are facing. Now, if you're not on Clubhouse yet, you should be. The Videographers Club is a great place to hang out and learn or offer some advice. And I'll put an official invite in the show notes of this podcast. All right, Laura and Kevin, let's start with our first question coming from Philip, who has an issue about the wedding he shot. Phil, you're having some issues with a bride wanting her money back and a retainer? She paid uh, my $1,500 retainer. Um, I sent her a proposal in the contract. In the contract, you pay you pay the retainer. The retainer is non, non-refundable. Then she tells me that her wedding planner doesn't want to work with her anymore, and now I can see why. So let's keep in mind there's $1,500 retainer already paid. There is $1,500 due for the wedding and the rest of everything. They're now demanding all of the money back. <laughs> Where, what, am I, what do I do? What a mess. Kevin, can you offer some insight? Yes, Philip, it all depends on the state where you live because different, different states have very different ways they handle what, what you're in and is an oral contract because the person didn't sign the agreement. Okay. Um, and so um, different states handle those things differently. Some will relit, you will rely on the communications, especially written communications back and forth to establish the contract, saying okay. at, at least at a minimum your retainer amount would be non-refundable. Some states okay. are very, very, very tough on those non-refundables if somebody has not signed it. So it really depends on the state where you're at. Um, it, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult one to answer because I haven't seen your, your agreements or the papers, but generally – the courts will err in the side of making it refundable since the person didn't get anything in return for your time. For the money. But they did because I but they did because I did go out and shoot the dinner party that they asked me to shoot as well as turn over footage and an edited video of it. Oh, okay. Well that's different. <laughs> so then you're then you're then if that being the case, you would be entitled to the reasonable value of your services for doing all of that. And then it would be justified for you to keep the retainer. And if, there, if you feel that your time was worth more than what was paid, you could pursue that even without a contract. I'm not surprised that the first one was a, a wedding videography issue. Um, you know, that's an area to be super careful about making sure what your contracts say and that everybody's on the same page and that you have 
um, the contingencies in place for changes. I can only imagine how it's been in the last year for those of you that do event photography and videography um, with all the, the cancellations and rescheduling. So just kind of reinforcing um, to make sure your contracts are very clear and, um, and you know, signed when you can get them signed. I know sometimes it just seems like you got the money, so that means everybody's in agreement, but try and get those signatures when you can. All right, David has the next question. Hey, guys, uh, I have a question that I was just hoping to get a final answer to. Um, if somebody is in your shot, I, and I've heard like percentage of the face and things like that, but I was wondering if there was like a solid answer. I've heard if they're, they're back, it, you can't see their face, you don't have to get a release. But then I've heard that there's like a percentage of a face, like a half turn towards the camera. Is there any, any kind of hard rule to if you have a composed shot, somebody's in the background and their part of their face is actually showing when you there's a tipping point when you actually have to get a release. Is there something like that? Just curious. I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule. I'd have to, to look further into that particular one. But um, I think if there's any way that that person could be recognized that you would want to err on the side of getting a release, or at least if you're you're filming in public having some sort of a, a notice up that you are filming to make sure that um, nobody in the vicinity can, you know, say that they, they weren't aware that they were being filmed. But um, again, and unless I was, you know, unless you look at it, it would be very fact-based. And, um, and so you'd want to probably err on the side of getting a release if you're able to identify the person. And that's where I, I always recommend that when you're doing your, your work to, to really do an inventory of everything that's going to be in the, the, the film so that, um, before you start rolling, you have release. Cause you know, in that one, if the person had turned, you would have needed it. So, um, so yeah, so I would err on the side of getting releases, um, even if it's just a partial, um, image of them. Thank I would you. concur with, with, with Laura's recommendation. I've litigated these type of cases and generally, you would win that. You I think in your circumstance, you would win it because inadvertent or or minor. But the problem is, do you want to deal with it? <laughs> so if you usually give somebody at least the credit and get the release, you save yourself a lot of headache. Yeah. So now, what if it's a street, you know, street photography? Obviously, that's a genre. And if you have is street or journalistic style photography, is there some sort of like other rules to that? Like if you're not doing a you know, on sticks production, you're doing more street style. Is there anything in relation to that? Like if there's people that are sort of milling about in the background, how does that work? Because I feel like journalists shoot people all the time with people in the background. Is that a different set of rules? Uh, or there, maybe? there are different set of rules. You know, the, the main one is, are you gaining financially yourself for it? So where you have photojournalists who are just reporting the news, and technically the newspapers do make money and stuff like that, but they're not using it for entertainment value, using it for reporting <clears throat> and for informational. And so they get a I, – I don't – I can't cite you directly the, the exception that they have for that, but that is really the distinction. If you're using it what they call pecuniary gain um, to make money for yourself as opposed for informational purposes – or um, um, for the benefit of the government or whatever stuff. That's the that's the distinction. So if you're if you're doing it for yourself, you have your own company, you're making money, you're posting on your website, 
all driven to to make profit your rules you you get the strictest of rules of beginning to have to get people to get releases and stuff like that versus a photojournalist does that make sense that makes sense now does documentary film making fall into that category if you were documenting let's say a homeless crisis um but you would potentially be selling that maybe is that does that fall more on the filmmaking for profit or more on informational side of the line? It would still fall on the filmmaking for profit side of the line. I, it's really so because the, the, the big media companies have the, the, the money, the power, the, 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 the lobbyists, they've created an exception that really accepts out media, news media from the rest of us. So I would never put myself in the, I would never recommend anybody put themselves in the same category as them, like a CNN and Fox and all those folks. So you would always be falling in the category of the for, you know, I'm, I'm doing this for profit. So, and especially with the documentaries and, um, in your example, um, filming homeless, well, there may be somebody there who, you know, doesn't want people to know that they're homeless or it could be, you know, something, um, entering into their privacy rights. So, so there you would want to definitely get um, get releases or at least posts that you are filming in the area and um, and let them know. I have a listener who uh, is a scuba diver, graduated from a class and uh, went scuba diving, recorded some really cool footage of underwater video and brought it back to the place that gave him the scuba certification. Uh, just gave it to one of the employees and they watched it. They loved it, whatever. And they kept it in the store. So come to find out, he comes back to the store and come to find out that he sees his photos on the brochures to promote the scuba classes. And he sees videos in the shop, his video in the shop promoting the store's scuba classes. So he's like, um, hello, that was meant only for you. Why are you making money off of this? And he's kind of saying, okay, what's my legal recourse here? If any, I mean, what would it be? I mean, what, what, what would you guys say to that? Well, I would say to you, Brian, um, you could tell them a couple of different things, depending on the state. Where so, uh, I always preface my questions that every state isn't the same. We're all generally the same throughout the country, but different states have different nuances. And then there's also a federal law component that applies to all of this because media can go beyond the state boundaries and stuff. The, the, the answer to this question is not as easy as he probably would like, but they, when, if you gave it to them as a gift, like here, you can have this, do whatever you want with it, kind of the conversation, then he has no recourse because that, you gave it to them for that purpose. If he didn't do it with that intent, which sounds like he didn't, then they would have to compensate him. So just because he allowed them to have it for, the, for them to use to show and maybe show without making a profit on it doesn't mean that they can go and make a profit on it. So because they didn't purchase the rights to do whatever they want with his media, um, it's basically he has some intellectual property rights to it. They, they shouldn't be making a profit on it without, at a minimum, getting giving him credit for his work, but let alone you know not even compensating for his time. So he does have some recourse. Um, um, obviously, if they're not making that much money on it, <laughs> you, you, you probably don't want you know get into, into lengthy lawsuits, but he should consider approaching them about coming into some type of a licensing agreement where they, he can decide what he, they can, they can and can't do with it. Um, and, and more importantly, also at least getting some credit for. So if someone sees his work, it's like, man, this guy's pretty good. I'd like to contact him. Maybe that has some value to him, you know, and, and, and that's separate and distinguished from, 
you know, making a couple of dollars from it. But he does have some recourse. Um, I would recommend that his first approach would be to try to make some type of a licensing arrangement with them where he can at least get credit for the work and that can have a benefit for him. I, I agree with Kevin. And also, I mean, his, he does have um, the copyright protection in the work because he created it. And so the fact that he gave it to him doesn't take away his um, his common law copyright. Um, he hasn't registered it, so he doesn't have I assume he hasn't registered it with the Copyright Office, so he wouldn't have what are considered statutory um, damages, but he could um, ask for, as damages, the amount that they would have paid for him to do it, um, you know, the, his actual damages if he had been selling it to them to use in their promotion. And, um, and, if, and it doesn't sound like he's in a situation, I mean, I'm sure they're pretty amicable, so, but you can, if somebody is using your work and, um, and you want them to stop, uh, you can write a, a cease and desist letter to have them take it down if, if it wasn't amicable. But I think probably Kevin's approach is the more productive one, um, because he probably would get more out of it by having the credit and having people see his work and then getting more work. If, if that's something that he wants to pursue, it doesn't sound like he was a, maybe a professional videographer. Um, so anyway, just some other options that he might have if he wanted to use them. Some great insight into these questions, Kevin and Laura. Before we get into more questions from the audience, why don't we take this time to uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your background? I started my own law firm about seven years ago. Um, I worked at a big firm in Miami. Um, and just wanted to do my own thing and deal with clients um, more with individuals, small business owners, not just the big corporations. So I started my own firm and invited Laura and others that work with me to, um, to do that and do things like we're doing today. One of the things we enjoy doing is educating the general community about legal issues so that people can identify when they have problems and maybe help themselves or know how to get help and um, not always wait till the last minute to get help. <laughs> we find a lot of times people come to us if they had come to us a month or two earlier, we could have done a lot more for them or made it a lot less expensive. And with that, I'll let Laura tell everybody a little bit about herself. I work with um, business owners and individuals and their um, transactional work. So whether that's creating contracts or determining whether they can, um, can use certain, um, in particular with uh, the arts and entertainment, copyright issues, intellectual property, protecting their intellectual property. Those are key areas. And um, I started out um, my practice focusing mostly on the, the arts because um, I'm passionate about supporting the arts and um, and collecting art. But then I, I transitioned and added in the entertainment um, arena. And that's why I'm especially excited to be here today because I feel like videographers um, really fall in both categories. I mean, you, you are artists, and I'm sure a lot of y'all use your um, your videos to create art, as well as um, using it in the entertainment business. So so that I like the, that you have the crossover here, and I'll be really interested in hearing what some of your questions are and, and which area they, they lean more towards. I will put a link to their law firm in the show notes of this podcast. All right, let's get back into the videographer room on Clubhouse. And again, if you are not a Clubhouse member yet, you should be. 
The Videographers Club is where you should go. It's a great place to hang out and learn or offer some advice. And again, I will put an official invite in the show notes of this podcast. Miles has a question about release forms. So for starting a small videography business, where would I go to get like official release forms? Um, and could I make my own? Probably, I probably answered my own question for the second one, but I do want to know where um, I could go get like official release forms because I do documentary film and um, a lot of stuff is interview based. So I need a lot of release forms um, to post stuff on YouTube and my social media. So where would I go to get those? Hey Miles, this is Kevin. There's a lot of you know, <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, Google will take you to a lot of the sources that you can look at. If you find forms, I would make sure you look at ones that are related with a trade organization. A lot of video and other type of, of production companies put forms up there for, for, for people starting businesses and, and novices, I guess is what they would refer to them to as um, they'll make forms available. I would trust more ones that come from recognized organizations as opposed to, I don't know who drafted this thing, but they stuck it on the internet. Um, but there's many, many, many organizations that have free forms available, some of the basic stuff. I agree. And you may want to look in your um, community to see if there's a, they have volunteer lawyers for the arts or an arts and business council. Sometimes um, you can go to them, especially when you're starting up a business, that's kind of their, their target group. And they can help you with all, all parts of starting your business um, in addition to the releases. All right, C, go ahead with your question. By me being a cannabis, um, a cannabis artist, I, I, I'm an enthusiast. Um, I'm an activist. I definitely um, smoke a lot. And in my videos, there's a lot of cannabis. Um, I shot a video a year ago that actually got banned on every platform, including YouTube, wouldn't even post it. There's no vulgar women in there. There's just literally me smoking weed. Um, but I have another video that's up that's at like 40,000 views right now. And there's been no issues, no blocking or anything. Is there any licensing that I'm supposed to have or anything that I can do in the future to prevent that or keep that from going on? As far as the different platforms, rules and what they allow, I think they're they're all pretty, um, you know, specific. So I would say you need to, to read through that. I don't know why one was taken down and the other wasn't without um, reading through their specific rules and then looking at the two videos. So I think just going back to seeing what the, the parameters are would be your, your best first step on those. Most of these companies spot check. They don't check every single thing that is posted on their platform. They usually respond to either a complaint or a complaint by somebody who is a view that has viewed your video. So some folks may have not have resented or had any complaints about the one and they did about the other one. That could be it. Or it could just be that when they were doing their quality check or their spot checking, they caught one and it just haven't caught the other. So it could be a combination of things why one survived and the other one didn't, but they do have the right to regulate what's on their platforms and there's nothing you can do in advance other than in, that, and I know YouTube doesn't necessarily do it either. So there's nothing you can do in advance to say, I'm going to put this up there. I'm, let's get a license agreement so I can keep my content up there irrespective. I don't think most of them do it that way. It's just a matter of kind of understanding what they will and won't reject and trying to put your, 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 you know, format your, your media, um, 
to that to to their requirements, but most of it is generated by somebody saying, "Hey, I don't like this," or enough people doing it where they paid attention to it. Right, right. and also be be aware of the. Um, I, I think it's YouTube is the one that has like a three strike rule. So, um, the idea of you know putting it up there and see if it flies is probably not the best um, approach either. Just in if um, they start targeting you, you could be banned completely from posting on YouTube. Umberto, you have a question. Okay, no worries. I, uh, yeah, I was just uh, real specific to film commission compared to um, a city mayor's office related to uh, resources available for um, legal purposes of filming or, or, or producing narrative or documentary. Okay. Um, I think I understand the question. I just want to be clear. Are you looking for like um, incentives, places that give incentives to film in their um, in their vicinity, in their city, in their state, or are you looking for something related to um, resources um, to help you um, do your filming? I'm not sure what what you were looking for. Uh, it's 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 more of just a general education on it. Uh, between if I was going to go to a film commission towards learning of like where I can film, uh, also like if, if what resources are available through that and then also related to, um, like in, in the city, um, it, I would be going to the, um, the, the city council for resources in terms of like documentation that's required. Um, signage and whatnot. Right, right. Yes, they should be able to. So, if you once you pick your location, they should be able to let you know what permitting is needed to do the filming. If I'm understanding your question, and any um, forms that you need to fill out to have it um, properly permitted. And we will go with the next question coming from Ryan. So, I'd like I'd like to hear your guys' insight on. One of the only cases I have heard of that's being fought right now, gentleman sent an unsolicited picture of himself to a woman, and she put the photo up on the blockchain, and uh, it sounds like he's taking her to court over it. Yeah, that's the same kind of issues you had with Facebooks and all those other, and I don't think the law will be any different there. Um, you don't have the ability of the provide the platform provider to protect you and to have some recourse there. So I think that things will go more directly to the court. The issues don't really change. Can't do that <laughs> and stuff like that. There's a lot of different laws that you violate and that, that, that have nothing to do with money and stuff like that. But um, I think, but those are the kind of things I'm talking about. Those are the kind of things you'll start to see more and more and more as more people become involved in in in, in the industry. Uh, grows is there's going to just oh there's oh you know we're we're in America and we sue over everything, so the the opportunities will be there and that's why I caution folks that as you get into this, while it's a new platform, the same old problems always apply of you know human decency, <laughs> making sure you're not trying to you you you're you're doing the right things in terms financially and in and being fair to people whose images and things you're using, um, protecting yourself you know the things that you create you know you're putting into a media that into a platform that people are, that's new to everybody there's no precedent for you to look at and say well this is how it's always happened so you're going to you're going to have all new set of experiences 
And so when you're going to something like that, you should always protect yourself. Think twice um, before getting involved. What about a scenario like of a various TMZ moment? What if you were to see a celebrity out and they were to be urinating on a wall and you were to put that up onto uh, the blockchain? I think you'll get sued just like you would in any other platform. But I think that because of the celebrities, they don't have the same, you know, they obviously aren't going to be able to get you for a defamation case. huh? Um, but, you know, you'll have some of the same. It, it, it doesn't change the issues. The law hasn't really changed. You know, some of the things that certain platforms have to prevent some certain, certain things from happening so they can avoid the lawsuit are just not there. I mean, that's kind of the, 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 the nice and fun thing about the platform is that this is something new. We don't have all the restrictions that we used to have. But as it begins to develop and more people start to use it and more people start to get involved, you can rest assured that, that regulations and rules will eventually apply and it'll eventually come into the same hang-ups, for lack of a better way of describing it, that you've had with everything else. Jacqueline, you had a question. With that, I wanted to um, ask a question. Uh, Kevin and Laura, what are some common uh, cases that you see among videographers or uh, content creators um, that you come across that you can maybe shed some light on for anyone listening? I will tell you that what we're, I, I, it's a shifting. So I've been, like I said, I've been a lawyer for 28 years. I've done a lot of intellectual property, copyright, trademark infringement stuff. And what's interesting I've seen over the last four or five years in particular is a shifting where, you know, when I, <laughs> hate to date myself, but when I was a young guy, you know, it was film. And film was very hard to copy unless you had the film and you copied it and you redistributed it as the internet and video became more prominent. And, and the ability to, to take images and take somebody else's create creations and replicate and replicate in a massive scales has changed and has gone up exponentially. What I've seen is a, is a shift with the videographers and people in the video world of they're just falling prey to a lot of people stealing their content. You know, you think I put it on YouTube. Well, just about anybody can take your stuff off of YouTube and use it. And it's very hard to track who's used it and who, where it's doing and what they're doing with it, you know? So, is the biggest thing I've seen shift over the last five years is the theft of people's um, content, uh, whether it be video or photography or anything like that. And it's pretty rampant. You know, Laura and I represent some clients that have issues with people using their content or some of their writers and stuff using content from other folks that didn't realize, oh, I didn't realize I took their thing and I didn't give them credit for it. Um, it's just the, the, the ease with which your content is being taken and replicated and sold and resold or used or reused without you even being aware. And I think that's a very, very, very big problem for a lot of people. I'll let Laura finish if she wants. No, I agree. That has um, been a trend that's been, been growing over the, the past years. And I think when, you know, when content did become so available, People just felt like, well, the internet's free, so everything on it is as well, and and started using other people's content without their permission or without um, licensing and paying. So it's definitely something that that comes up frequently. Um, the other area I see with videographers is when they're um, when they're contracted to do a special event or um, and going back to the weddings or any type of a uh, uh, basically it's a commissioned work um, looking at it from kind of the artist side just um, not being really clear in the contract what the expectations are 
Um, because if you aren't clear, you're going to have different expectations of what your customer is expecting to get and what you're expecting to provide. So I just, those issues are the ones that consistently come up where there wasn't a meeting of the, the minds before the project got started. And then they're trying to, um, figure it out on the back end, which is never a good place to be because then nobody's happy. Yeah, and I and I would recommend to a lot of you who are starting out in the business and stuff. And, you know, it's expensive in, in some senses, but you know, it, it doesn't hurt to get yourself a decent lawyer to get you the right kind of forms and things. Because I also think another area, not, not in addition to the content being stolen, is this. I think we had somebody on earlier just getting stiffed out of your work. I mean, you're you someone you know hires you to do some work, and you're really willing, able, excited to do the work. But you got to get paid for your time, and you know, and and making sure that you 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 have the recourse to be able to, to make sure you get your 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 time compensated for, and then you follow your own rules. I you know I hear so many times that people I sent them a contract where they never sent it, and well until they signed it, <laughs> don't do anything, <laughs> you know, including taking their money, money and the money's great, but you got to have them sign the documents that you need to protect yourself because people people stiff you guys all the time. I mean that's a big complaint I hear. Heard it twice a day. People didn't get paid for their time, and what am I? What are my rights? You just got to make sure you cover yourself no matter what, and you also want to make sure you limit your liability because that's another thing that you know you do. You 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 go to a site, something happens wrong, and all of a sudden it's your fault. You know, so you just got to think about those things. And so investing early on to have someone just give you at least a decent set of documents to work with. Yes, there's a lot of things available on the internet, and they're free, and they're they're forms, but they're exactly that. There's a reason why they're free. Um, they're a good place to start. But, you know, it may be best to say, hey, I found this free form. I put my own ideas and I'm going to pay someone six, seven hundred bucks to look at it. Now I've got a form that's a lot better. That may be cheaper than having someone draft it for you f- from scratch. But you should do something like that because it'll save you a lot of headache and time and money in the future. Ben's question is next. Uh, thank you for uh, hosting this, and uh, it's very beneficial for all to uh, shade the light on the legal side. My direct question is, as we are shooting videographs and uh, still, who's the legitimate owner of the raw files in this shoot uh, when you are contracting with someone that he is going to just get the final product of the shoot? So is it legally... Uh, I mean, uh, that uh, client asks for the row and you have uh, the right to not to give it to him? I, I think I'm understanding your, your question, and it's something that I actually was going to bring up in, when we were just talking in, in general. Um, the owner of the, the work is going to be in the contract if you, you have a contract with them to, um, to make the production. If, if, is that what you're asking? Yes, uh, I mean, contract says that I'm going to just deliver the final uh, movie or the final film or the clips, and that's it. Nothing mentioned about the owner of the raw files. Right. So so the um, the raw material you're talking about, I guess. Correct. Yes, you are right. Okay, okay. So, um, so typically in your contract, you're going to have something that, defines who owns what. And um, often I see, and, and it's normal when you're providing video for a, a movie or 
um, a larger piece is that you'll either say that it's a work for hire or you will, um, you will say even if it doesn't technically fall under work for hire, it's going to be a work for hire. So you, you relinquish all of your, your rights to the, the works when you hand it over to them. Yeah, I'll follow up on Laura's because I had dealt with this. So, you know, it, 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 again, it, it all depends too on the contractual where, where you're doing the work. You know, if it has international implications, if it just has national implications or just state implications. But the general rule to follow is if it's not in the contract, assume that everything you're doing for somebody else, they hire and can take everything. That's generally how the law is going to look at it. So you, as the provider, are obligated to right and say this is this is what you get and this is what I keep and I have the right to use it do this and do that you have to spell that out generally in your contract not only what you're keeping but what you can do with what you're keeping um, or they're going to have recourse against you so if it's silent as to that issue even if you say I'm just going to deliver the final product the because it's your contract and you're the provider a court would would look at it in a way that's least favorable to you because you're the person that's doing it and most favorable to the other person. So the burden is always on you to make sure you cover yourself so that you can keep whatever it is you intend to keep. And that's just a good rule of thumb to follow whenever you're you're, you're, you're selling your work to somebody else is what you want to do with it. For example, I have a client that sells, I won't get into specifics, but we make sure that people can only you, you get the final product and you're not even allowed to reproduce this even though I sent you the final product, you can't even reproduce it and resell it to somebody else. You get to enjoy this for your own personal consumption. We had to write that in there because once we sell the painting or the piece of art to the person, if they, they can do whatever they want. They can make thousands and thousands of prints and resell the person's work over and over again, probably make more money than they paid for it. So you have to be very specific as to what you want to limit the person buying the product um, to do. So if they only get the end product and I get to keep all the all the all the raw and footage and everything else that's associated with creating what I gave you, and I can do whatever I want with it. You have to be very specific about that. And finally, our last question coming from Will. So I'm running into issues where um, Ben was just talking about with clients. They they're wanting the raw files, and I'll put in my contract that um, they're not. If they want the raw files, um, it's a, it's a certain you might have to pay a fee for it. Um, but I don't know why clients think that they're automatically going to get the raw files when I give them the final product. And I tell them in the contract what they're actually getting. Like I had, I did an Arabic uh, wedding. And she thought that since I was there for six hours, that she was going to get a six-hour video. And then the contract stated she was getting a three-minute highlight video. And like, you know, now when it comes to like contracts, especially video purposes, like my contracts are like, I think like seven pages long only because like I make sure that I have so that my contracts are so detailed, like you were just saying, that you're not going to be able to remember everything or, or any scenario. So, um, you know, that's just my question. Like, like where are clients getting this from? Is it, are they getting it from other people that they know? Or, or is it because other videographers are just giving them a highlight um, reel and they're giving them raw files? Well, I think part of it, Will, is just ignorance on the people buying it and they think I'm paying for it so I get everything. <laughs> so, you know, 
I think so. Some of it is that, and maybe some of it is their dealings with others, but probably most of it is just ignorance. But I would suggest to you that, you know, especially when you have longer contracts, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this, but a lot of times when you have certain contracts and there's four or five paragraphs, I really need you to double read because most people sign these things without even reading it. You make them initial that paragraph so you can know for sure that they read that specifically. So when you go back and you talk about the contract, say you can say, I had you look at this one initially because this was an important paragraph. You knew this. And so, you know, something like the raw footage, the, the, the raw files, maybe that's one of those you make people initial that paragraph so they can understand right up front. You know, if I don't remember anything else from this contract, <laughs> I'm paying, I'm getting this thing and I'm not getting that thing and the rest of the stuff they can ignore. So maybe highlighting the paragraphs that you're feeling you're, that you're experiencing some feet, some, some pushback from your customers saying, okay, I'm going to have to have them like re, re, like re-acknowledge these three or four paragraphs by initialing them separately when they sign. Well, that does it for another edition of the DV Show podcast. I want to thank attorneys Laura Cosgrove and Kevin Ross from ICLA Law for their time and insight. We'll put a link to their firm in the show notes of this podcast. Also want to thank Jacqueline and Ryan from the Videographer's Room on Clubhouse for putting it all together. Along with Philip, David, Miles, C, Umberto, Ben, and Will, thanks for powering the conversation. Now, if you're not on Clubhouse yet, you should be. It's a lot of fun. The Videographer's Club is a great place to hang out and learn or offer some advice. I'll put an official invite in the show notes of this podcast. We'll talk to you next week. Video production just got easier. The DV Show. Serious about creating better video? You're in the right place. Subscribe to our free online coaching service and expand your learning beyond our popular podcast.